Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome to Talking Tudors, episode 171, and the fourth instalment of all things 16th century women. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Over August and September, we'll be exploring the lives of 16th century women through a series of podcast episodes right here on Talking Tudors and video lectures, which will be published on my YouTube channel. So be sure to subscribe. While all the content is free, I ask that you consider supporting my work and the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Visit patreon.com slash Talking Tudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is a copy of Dr. Estelle Peronk's brilliant new book, Blood, Fire and Gold, the story of Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. Thank you to Dr. Peronk for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 20th and the 21st of August, I'll be chatting to Adrian Dillard about Jane Seymour and Marjorie Horseman. Details are published on Patreon. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about shaping femininity is Dr. Sarah Bendel. Sarah Bendel is a research fellow at the Gender and Women's History Research Centre, Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences at the Australian Catholic University. She's a material culture and dress historian whose work focuses on the role of gender in the production, trade and consumption of global commodities and fashionable consumer goods between 1500 and 1800. Sarah is the author of Shaping Femininity, Bloomsbury 2021. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome to All Things 16th Century Women. How are you, Sarah? I'm well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, I'm very excited about our chat today. So let's just start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So um, my name's Sarah Bendel and I'm a, I call myself a material culture historian. Um, I mainly focus on uh, dress history though, so early modern, so 16th, 17th and and slowly venturing into the 18th centuries. So I'm a research fellow um, in the Gender and Women's History Research Centre at the Australian Catholic University um, in Melbourne. Fantastic. Excellent. It's always lovely to speak to a fellow Aussie. doesn't I happen know. too often. <laughs> so let's start by maybe just telling us a little bit about how important clothing was during the 16th century. Yeah, I mean, clothing was incredibly important. I mean, for various reasons. Some of them, you know, we're very familiar with today. It, it shelters us from the elements, provides warmth. The thing that made clothing extremely important during the early modern period, particularly the 16th century, was this idea that, you know, and, and the 16th century is when um, this idea about clothes maketh the man or woman first come about. So it's really this idea that from someone's clothing, you should be able to tell quite a lot about them. And, you know, some of these things we still have now, clothing was about self-expression and, you know, definitely in the past people expressed themselves through their clothing. But in this period in the 16th century, I would say what made clothing so important was that it really was supposed to reflect your sort of social status or station in life. And that's because it was heavily, it was heavily regulated. So we had sumptuary legislation, which did regulate what what certain people of certain classes could and could not wear. England wasn't quite as full on, when, I guess, when it came to sumptuary legislation, you know, in different parts of Europe. I know in some of the German provinces, for example, there are very specific things that you could and could not wear, like items um, of clothing you could and could not wear based on your social status. In England, it was more about the fabrics that you could and could not wear. But yes, yeah, so I'd say clothing was, it was really important because you were supposed to be able to, from what somebody was wearing, most like make a very like genuine assessment of who they were, what their background was, where they sort of sat in the social, in the social ladder. And that became even more important when you're an elite person who, you know, can access particular types of, of clothing and that you were able to wear certain types of clothing. So once you get to sort of anybody who is landed or aristocratic, there are sort of very strict rules about what types of fabric you can wear, on what you can wear it, on what occasions, you know, you may be able to wear certain things that on other occasions you can't. So there's this whole unwritten world, I guess, of etiquette when it came to clothing that we're sort of unraveling, but it was really to, so you could place people within your within your world yeah I think it, imagine if we were just sort of dropped there there'd be so much that we'd need to learn in terms of etiquette because I, I remember reading somewhere that obviously you know the colors that you could wear also strictly guarded I suppose and and the amount of fabric that you could have in, in your clothing so it would be very confusing for a stranger wouldn't it yeah if you went back in a time machine you'd have to be so careful <laughs> but there's still so much that we don't understand so you could very easily get yourself in trouble absolutely so what was the ideal female silhouette in at this time in the 16th century and I know this changed over the decade so maybe if you tell us a little bit about that yeah so um during the 16th century I'd say the predominant ideal for and, and this really applies to both 
men and women's bodies. I mean, my research focuses more on women, but there is uh, interesting sort of overlaps between the silhouette of men and women in the 16th century and the early, and I'll I'll talk about the early 17th century as well. And I think when I refer to 16th, just because the Jacobean period is quite similar continuity-wise to the Elizabethan period. But you get a lot of descriptions of the ideal female body, for example, and these also apply to men's bodies as being um, straight and slender. So that basically meaning um, not only are you slender, are you skinny, but straight and upright. So, and that's really why you get garments like men's doublets, but also why you get the start of corsetry in this period. So um, pairs of bodies is what they're called in this period. And those garments are really designed to create this sort of elongated, straight, slim torso. Um, And so most men and women's bodies, if you look at paintings and, you know, even before um, corseted pairs of bodies come about in the Elizabethan period, if you look to the courts of Henry VIII, for example, there you, you can see this sort of silhouette on both men and women, this sort of inverted triangular shape that, um, and they look quite flat and slim. And that really was the, the ideal of the period and their clothing reflected that. So it created this sort of like optical illusions of slim and straightness. Um, Georges Vigarello, who's a French social historian has talked about this a lot, sort of calls it the uprightness of the body. So he, he's looked at how in France and this happens in England as well. And I mean, this is mainly talking about men's bodies. So it's sort of even more extreme for women, how there's this gradual shift to this emphasis of having good deportment. So we would say good posture and that which really is sort of reflected in this sort of upright, straight body. And so that's really what you get during this period. And, you know, added on to that for women, I would say the other ideal in the the torso is small breasts. I know there's sort of, I don't know how accurate it is, but there's sort of this rumor, for example, that Henry VIII liked small breasts. (laughs) So, and so, you know, and and it really is, it is a thing in in this period. Um, And actually dating back to the medieval period, large breasts were seen as uncomely and slightly provocative, but in a negative way, but also you know, it might have indicated that you weren't young and sort of perky anymore. And that that really does carry through to the 16th century as well. So that's sort of when it comes to torsos, it's this long, lean, small breasts for women. And then as you move in throughout the period, you start to get sort of skirts, varying different volumes, men's breeches, for example, are also quite voluminous at different times. And then this silhouette really carries through to the 17th century. And it's not really, and you know, at different times in the 17th century, maybe breasts are emphasized more at different stages, but it really sort of stays this conical shape, not quite as long as the Elizabethan period through to the 18th century, actually. There's still this like emphasis on um, good posture and shoulders back. And it doesn't really change for women until the 19th century, which is when you get more of this hourglass shape. Yeah, I always marvel at some of the Tudor portraits, especially the Elizabethan ones, where their waists are like tiny and you wonder, gosh, what's going on there? And even Elizabeth I, is it her funeral? Her and funeral effigy, effigy. Uh, pair of bodies is is tiny. And like I think, is I that think, real? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my my hypothesis, I guess, is that it, it was definitely made by her tailor and it's 
likely based on examples that the Queen had. Um, so when the Queen died, there was a warrant put out that they needed certain, it was a pair, a pair of drawers and a pair of bodies made for her effigy, which then they took obviously clothing from her wardrobe and put it on. And it was made very quickly. So I'd say it was either patterns that were already sitting around or it's definitely based on something that she already owned. Whether or not they cut it down and made it right, a bit smaller yeah. for the effigy, that's a possibility. But Elizabeth I was always described as fitting this ideal body shape. They, there's various descriptions of her as being tall and straight and slender. So you, you've described the, the ideal look that women were obviously going for in this period. And you've, and you've also touched on some of the garments used to, to help you get that mm. look. But can you maybe go into that a little bit more and just tell us about those main foundation garments that women are wearing at this time? Yeah, of course. So in the 16th century, you, really, you start to have the first foundation garments. So by foundation, I mean the sort of structured undergarments that really create the, the shape of the period. And, you know, these sort of foundations garments can be seen in various different variations up until the 20th century. And I mean, now we wear shapewear. So it's really the garments that sort of give you that ideal silhouette of the period. In the late 15th century, um, there's something called a farthingale that comes about in Spain. So a farthingale is a um, structured underskirt, although it's in Spain in the late 15th century, it can also be part of the outer skirt as well. So there's sort of three main types of farthingales during the 16th century. So you get the Spanish farthingale, which is what it was called in England. And that is the skirt that had come from Spain in the late, in sort of the early 16th century. So Catherine of Aragon is wearing one when she arrives in England to marry. But she doesn't really wear it for the first sort of couple of decades that she's in England. There's been, you know, lots of people say that she popularizes it in England, but really it doesn't come into fashion in England till about the 1540s. So this is a, a classic sort of hooped skirt um, with round hoops. And then in the 1540s, that becomes quite popular in, in England. So um, that's when you sort of start to see it in different um, wardrobes for Princess Elizabeth, for example gets her first one in the early 1540s and then in the 15 so that is quite popular until about the 1570s and then you start to get descriptions of what the English called French farthingales so obviously farthingales that had come fashion for farthingales that had come from France and we're not exactly sure what these garments look like there's no surviving examples there's only one surviving example of the Spanish farthingale and that one is in Spain also on another um, effigy but we think French farthingales were sort of two different types. So unlike a Spanish farthingale, which was a hoop skirt that sort of went down to your ankles from your waist, French farthingales seem to have sat around the waist. And so the majority of the bulk of the skirt is around the waist. So we think the first one was like a roll that sat around the waist of various different sizes. And then sort of by the 1590s at the, you know, that sort of last stage of Elizabeth's life where her clothing is just to us sort of outrageous and like crazy. We think she wears a type of French farthingale, which really is like a disc that sort of comes out from the waist and that creates, and um, that's quite popular in the Jacobean period as well. So it really creates that, I guess that flat surface that you yes. see with their skirts and then there's like this plateau. And so that's uh, one type of foundation garment is the farthingale. And the other type, which I mentioned before, was a pair of bodies. So in the 16th century, bodies um, basically referred to the torso covering garment. And this is where we get the modern word bodice from. 
there's sort of very different stiffening going on with, you know, in um, the court of Henry VIII, for example, their, their bodices or their bodies are often stiffened with pasteboard or rabbit skin glue, but there's, there's no boning per se. And it's not until the 1590s that you start to get what we would think as like a modern, as a corset. So these sort of boned torso garments that are, that are called straight bodies or French bodies. Again, French because the influence is coming from France in England. And those, as we all know, stay in fashion and in use right up until, well, I was going to say the 20th century, but there's just recently been a huge fashion trend of corsets again so we're still doing it now isn't it funny how the fashion just comes around every so i know it's so interesting i mean great for me who you know just published a book yeah (laughs) i've had a lot of people asking me about corsets so it's really like nice to be able to go back to the start and tell people about them absolutely and when i was doing a little bit of research i came across the busk and some information that you'd given about this and its association with love and sexual desire so i was wondering if you could talk to us Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah, of course. The Basque is fascinating. It was in my my honours year at university that I first came across the Basque and that's sort of what set me down this, this rabbit hole, I guess, of my PhD and my research, my book. So the Basque was a long piece of hard material, so quite often wood or metal or it could be horn or it could be a, quite a thick piece of whale baleen and it was placed down the center front of the pair of bodies or in the 18th century pair of stays um, and it was still actually used in the 19th century in corsetry um, up until about the mid 19th century and so yeah it was this long flat piece of rigid material um, and basically its use in fashion was to stop you from slouching so again to create this upright straight body shape that is you know so desired in the 16th century and you know men's doublets they didn't have a bust but they would often have sort of bits of boning down the center front next to the buttons which served a similar function so where the bust becomes really fascinating though is it is an accessory that could be taken in and out of clothing so in the late 16th century you start to get descriptions in plays and satires of men inscribing busks with love tokens with sometimes like quite raunchy sort of sayings and giving them to their sweethearts or to someone that they're wooing or courting so this tradition sort of yeah it it begins in the 16th century I mean I've only looked at it in the English and the French context but it's it sort of yeah definitely starts in um, in both in the late 16th century And it's quite interesting at first, it's like, it's quite like sexualized and discussed in quite a bawdy manner. And so the, the bow, there was a bow that women would um, tie it into their, into their bodies with. Um, And that's where we hypothesize that, you know, a lot of modern bras still have the little bow in the middle, that's maybe where that comes from. But there's also discussion of women giving men their, that was called a busk point. So bits of ribbon and men, uh, so women giving those to men in return as love tokens. And so this tradition continues through the 17th century and by the late 17th, 18th century, it's sort of, you still get sort of the bawdy jokes about these objects, but they're very much tied with courtship rituals that have developed over that preceding sort of hundred years and sort of these associations with romantic love. So yeah, if you were a man courting a woman, you might give her lots of little love tokens and one of them might have been a busk 
So fascinating. And do we have surviving examples from the 16th century? Yes. Yeah, so the great thing about busts is because of the nature of them being these sort of hard um, materials, a lot have survived. So the majority of busts with that have survived that have inscriptions on them date to the 17th century, but we know that they were inscribing them in the 17th century from, uh, sorry, 16th century from written records. But the ones that survived from the 16th century tend to be um, quite decorative. So there's some in the Victorian Albert Museum. There's um, some French ones made of ivory. And then there's actually quite a few Italian and French examples in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York as well. Unfortunately, yeah, none from the 16th century have inscriptions to my knowledge, but they are really beautiful to look at. Oh, fantastic. I, I can see myself, you know, in another rabbit hole looking, looking at pictures. Yeah, if you bus. just type in bus, B-U-S-K, to the Met yeah. catalogue, it'll bring them all up. Oh, They're fantastic. so interesting. Looking forward to that. All right, so in terms of foundation garments, were they worn, did all women wear these up and down the social scale or was it more predominantly aristocratic and royal women? Yeah, so that was something that um, I really wanted to look at in my research because I think, you know, in a lot of the literature that I read or speaking to different people, there was this notion that non-aristocratic women didn't wear these garments until much later, even into, you know, the mid to late 18th centuries. But in my research, I found that they were actually a lot more widely worn much earlier than we than we thought. So they're definitely, they start off as aristocratic garments they, again, sort of complement all these ideas to do with the aristocracy in the 16th century. So sort of the quite the theatricality of the courts in the 16th century, these ideals of the aristocratic body, which are very much this sort of slender and straight and upright deportment. Um, you know, obviously good posture projects power, it projects confidence. There was a lot of concerns about, you know, having good bloodlines and good breeding. So, you know, you didn't want any physical deformities or anything like that that could indicate that there might be something you know not wrong or wrong at the time I guess they considered it to be with your family and you know farthingales for example complement ideas of wealth so the bigger your skirt the more fabric you needed to cover it which means the more money you had to have because fabric during this during the 16th century and the 17th century as well is incredibly expensive so Whereas now, I guess, labor and fabric is cheap and clothing is cheap. In the 16th century, fabric was incredibly expensive and labor was cheap. Um, and so most people's clothing across the social scale, but definitely, you know, the more clothing and more expensive clothing you had, it really was stored wealth. And so, you know, when we when we hear about by the 18th century, people being sent to places like Australia to the penal colonies because they stole a piece of clothing like we think that's quite extreme but clothing was extremely expensive which is why a lot of people didn't have a lot of clothes unless they were the elites but nevertheless I found in my research that sort of by the mid early to mid 17th century um, you start to get a lot more women wearing these garments so I would say a middle the middle classes start to wear them Probably by the six, I found like, you know, yeoman farmers' wives that have them in their wardrobes in the 1620s, servants by the middle of the 17th century. In the 16th century, you'd be more likely if you weren't aristocrats or gentry to be wearing one of these garments. It may be if you're a servant in the household gentry or aristocracy and you 
a scene with your lady because it's sort of she might hand things down to you or um, you're you need to dress in a way that reflects her social standing Um, but I have found a couple of women in the late 16th century who seem to be one seems to be the wife of a clerk and the other is comes from a quite a wealthy merchant family so these women aren't aristocratic they're not gentry they're probably like quite wealthy middling sorts and they both have farthingales so yeah you sort of start to see this trickle down effect that happens so these garments start as aristocratic garments and then over the course of the 16th century and then the 17th century they start to sort of be more widely worn until by the 18th century i would argue that the majority of women would have worn, even if not every day, they would have worn some sort of foundation garment. If it wasn't brand new, they could have bought it secondhand. They could have been gifted it. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So, Sarah, how did these garments help shape not just bodies, but shape and define notions of femininity in early modern England? Yeah, so that was, I guess, the overarching argument of um, of my book, Shaping Femininity. And I sort of argue that in, in many ways, these garments did shape our notions of femininity, or at least aided in the sort of changing expressions of those notions. So the, the sort of question I, I always come down to, which was one that struck me quite early on in my research, was that in sort of, for example, the late 16th century, if you were wearing a pair of bodies or a corset, you were you could be labelled to use the word they would use at the time, a whore. Whereas by the end of the 17th century, if you're not wearing a pair of bodies or a corset, you're labelled a whore. So there's like this, this huge transition in expectations of women and how women should look and how women should, how their deportment should be, how they should behave. And I think these are really, these garments, aid in those expressions of femininity, but also helped to people to, I guess, navigate those expressions of femininity. And particularly in this period, there's a lot of men writing about women, a lot of men writing about what women should and shouldn't do. And they have a lot to say about foundation garments, but what they're saying and what women are doing are often two different things. So there's this really interesting complex interplay between, I guess, men trying to regulate fashion and shaping the discourse that is happening around fashion and why women should and shouldn't wear certain things. So for example, there's quite a lot of discussion in the 16th and the 17th centuries about women's bodies and how can we see what women's bodies are really like when they're wearing something like a farthingale? Like how do we know if they're pregnant or not? How do we know if they're disabled or deformed using their terminology at the time? Like what are women hiding under these skirts? Then there's, you know, there's anxiety about women hiding legitimate pregnancies and there's anxiety when it comes to corsetry about women using them to get rid of pregnancies that they don't mm-hmm. want and, and, and things like that. And so these really do, these garments become this sort of center point of a lot of these discussions and really help to shape the discussions that that you know men and women are having about female behavior and and how they should be and so that's sort of really where that idea of like shaping femininity comes through from it doesn't just shape the way that women physically and the silhouette should look it really starts to shape a lot of the discourses about women's bodies about beauty and I mean the fact I think that we're still talking about corsetry now you know, it really sort of starts 
these 500 years of discussions about you know how women should look how women should behave and like what women's appearances says about her as an individual but women as you know a group of people as well yeah that's where shaping femininity comes from yeah that's wonderful and if anyone's everyone listening that's shaping femininity sarah's book we didn't mention it in the introduction but you can go and have a look at that great book to find out more information about what we're discussing so we've talked a lot about the garments but i'm always interested to hear about the people making them the artisans who made and Mm. sold these garments so what did you find out about those people yeah so the artisans I find so fascinating because the I guess the the transition from the 16th to the 17th century is is quite interesting in the way that the organization of artisans changes and then again by the 18th century it's quite different again so I was really interesting in in the book to sort of look at who was making these different things. So in this, for the majority of the 16th century, a woman's clothing would have been primarily made by both a seamstress who was a woman who, usually a woman, you could have male seamsters, who were um, sewing her linen undergarments. So that would be your smock or your shift. Um, maybe, you know, a foff or different sorts of linen goods. You might have a hosier simultaneously who's making your stockings. Um, and But all of your outer garments would have been made by a tailor and a tailor was usually male. And this is because the guild structure at the, the time, the way that you were trained was really only open to men, wasn't so much open to women. So yeah, usually a seamstress was a woman and a tailor was a man, although that's not totally set in stone. The more research we do, the more we find that actually this may have been a little bit more fluid, especially by the end of the 17th century. For most of the 16th century, you would have had a seamstress and a tailor. And then what was really interesting in looking at these garments was that by the end of the 16th century, you start to have this specialization of professions taking place. So for example, um, and you can see this really clearly through Elizabeth I's wardrobe. So for the majority of her reign, her clothing was made by a tailor. And then, oh, sorry, her majority of her life as a princess and then the first half of her reign by a tailor. And then the 1570s, she has a designated farthingale maker. So this is, um, this was a man, there, was, there were two different men um, at various stages who their role in the wardrobe was just to make farthingales and so these were men who obviously trained as tailors and then they saw this specialization where they could just specialize in making one thing and then um by the 1590s when she starts wearing pairs of bodies they're still made by her tailor and actually most all the queens in the 17th century their pairs of bodies are made by their tailors but by looking at guild records in London you start to see that by the end of the 16th century there is another profession that comes about and they're called body makers and so there's a lot of play on words about body makers and (laughs) making bodies (laughs) Um, but these again are specialized tailors who just seem to specialize in making pairs of bodies and so a lot of the ones that I've looked at in my research are located in around Cheapside in London so Cheapside had a lot of different textile and garment making trades Um, and there's a lane if anyone 
sort of knows the area that's listening quite well called Bow Lane, which you can still walk down. And there was a lot of body makers who were in Bow Lane. So yeah, that's where a lot of the, the artisans in this period are working by the end of the 16th century. And they sort of stay there during the 17th for most of the 17th century as well, until obviously the Great Fire of London, that area sort of gets quite destroyed. And there's a lot of different things that happen after that. But yeah, these, these are really like fascinating artisans and the way that it changes and the way that they specialize and what I found was there was quite a lot of overlap between these artisans in that some people are calling themselves farthingale makers at certain stages of their career and then they call themselves body makers and so there seemed to be a lot of switching going on between what they choose to call themselves depending on what is fashionable so yeah really really fascinating trades and there's a lot of like interesting characters I mean this isn't he's not in the 16th century but he's in the 17th century there's one guy who's a body maker his name is Theophilus Riley and I think that's what first made me remember him because his name is so unique but the more I dug into him the more it was really interesting so he was you know an early corset maker he was a body maker and he was had a couple of shops in Cheapside and Bow Lane but he became um, caught up in different royalist plots during the civil wars and he ended up and he ended up in the tower of london for a little while and yeah just like totally like fascinating people that are so intriguing yeah i love that i actually had i didn't know that they specialized in just making bodies or just making farthingales so that that's really interesting and you i just out of curiosity are these people coming from overseas i know a lot of the other artisans Mm. obviously came from europe and other places did you find any information about that yeah so a lot of the a lot of the ones that I looked at actually seem to be homegrown. So a lot of them are are British, oh, sorry, English from London. There's a lot of um, people by the, especially by the late 16th and 17th centuries um, coming in actually from the different counties into London and being trained in London. And some of them go back to the, their respective counties and others stay in London. So there's a lot of migration that way. But for the most part, in terms of body and farthingale makers, um, most of them seem to be English. But that's not, Elizabeth did have different people coming in. Elizabeth loved French tailors. So, and you can definitely tell that she's often sending to France to get, you know, these sorts of influences coming from France. But yeah, definitely during the 16th and the early 17th centuries, the, the body makers and farthingale makers that I've looked at all seem to be mostly English. My new work is sort of looking at the wardrobe accounts of the Stuart queens in the 17th century. And a lot of those queens uh, have like French, have French tailors and mm. mantua makers and seamstresses. And that's really because it's really the, the 16th century is the Spanish uh, sort of dominate, I guess. The, there was there's always this discussion in England in the 16th century that England doesn't have its own style, <laughs> yeah. that it just takes clothing from everywhere, which is quite true, actually. And so that's where you get things like French bodies or Spanish farthingales or Italian gowns, you know, often things are named after where that influence has come from. But you, yeah, don't tend to get a lot of the artisans but definitely by the end of the 17th century when the French French were really like the trendsetters in Europe and remained so during the 18th century that's when you really get a lot of French tailors and dressmakers that seem to be sort of headhunted and brought brought over. We've been talking about some of these ideals that you know women aspired to or that women were expected to (laughs) to fulfill so how do these ideals still influence western society today do you think? 
They do in so many ways. And I think it's such an interesting question to think about because I I think a lot of, you know, the the feedback I tend to get from people when I I speak about this, and this is definitely something that, you know, I, I thought before I started studying this topic is, I think we think that we are so much more progressive than people in the past. And so I tend to get these, oh, you know, corsets, they were so bad for women. They, you know, this and this and this. Without sort of really thinking about the ways that we still are influenced by these garments now. So we still have shapewear. You know, I imagine that there are many women out there and those listening that own a pair of Spanks. <laughs> in there you know and that is basically you know the 21st century equivalent of a foundation garment it's designed to create a certain foundation for your clothing so whether that is to smooth out lumps and bumps or you know now we've got so many different types of shapewear some can you know lift your bum some can do various different things and that's exactly what these garments are during this during this period so we still do things like that um we still use plastic surgery, for example, you know, and I mean, you could argue that that's almost worse because we're, we're doing, you know, I don't have a skin in the game either way. I I find it just interesting the way the humans want to constantly change their bodies, but you know, in the, in the period in the 16th century, you would use a farthingale to make it look like you have a bigger bum. Now we actually (laughs) use surgery. So I think there's a lot of really interesting sort of connections you can make between the ways that we try to change our bodies now and the way that you know women are still viewed or the way that we view corsetry that sort of really start in this period I think we reflect back and we go oh they were so silly but like I'm sure in like you know 200 years people will look back at what we're doing now to our bodies and be like oh that was so silly so yeah I think there's like a lot of influence still in that regard in terms of body shaping in terms of the way that we still desire certain silhouettes and the way that silhouettes change throughout history the desirability of whether you're emphasizing yeah the butt or the waist or the breast for example I don't think it's ever really gone away and I think a lot of the the ideas we have now can sort of be traced back to this earlier period just starting to wrap up the conversation so obviously you've done a lot of research into this subject you've spent a lot of time immersed in all the sources and everything what are some of the misconceptions that that you've encountered while you've been researching and writing I think the biggest misconception is sort of related to what we were just talking about this idea that that a like we are so much better than people were in the past and people in the past were so silly in the way that we sort of I think we project a lot onto the past without understanding the context. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions would be that these garments were so uncomfortable and how did women like live their life in them and mm. you know, men forced women into wearing them and, and stuff like that. So I did a lot of um, reconstructions and in um, my research and in my, you know, my downtime, I like to sew and I, I do reconstruct historical dress. And so I'm used to wearing, I've sort of worn these garments before. I've put them on models to wear them to assess sort of restrictiveness and stuff like that. And they're really not as bad as people think they are. Of course, to our modern sensibilities, you know, we've just spent two years in a pandemic. Most of us, I'm sure, at home wearing track pants and stuff like that. I mean, I literally got an Udi the other day and it's like the best thing I've ever (laughs) Oh, I'm like, like why didn't this come into my life sooner so our ideas of what is comfortable are so drastically different and I was you know talking to a colleague about this the other day and I would say the biggest difference between like early modern dress 
although even like you know 20th century versus earlier is that in the past your body was expected to conform to dress and that's because you didn't have things like stretch in clothing you know that's having stretch fibers in fabric is only been around for the last you know 50 to 70 years so this this ability for your clothing to move and to change with your body is a very modern thing so in the past your body was expected to conform to dress and that's why you have things like foundation garments that molded your body and you know men wore padded doublets and stuff like that because your body was expected to to conform to dress whereas now we expect our dress to conform to our body mm. because we have things like stretch in our fabric we have different um have princess seams you have all these different sort of cuts and tailoring and you know the bias for example the bias gown you know that was invented in the 20s you know putting fabric on the bias can give it a bit of stretch but that was really when we started to experiment with stuff like that quite you know a lot and so I think that is yeah ref- that was sort of one of my biggest I guess surprises or reflections was really thinking about the way that modern ideas of our bodies and of comfort how we ref- we sort of project those onto the past when they had really different views you know I was talking to someone recently about how if I went and spoke to women now and I said are you like short-waisted or long-waisted a lot of women wouldn't know the answer to that and that was because we don't really have a lot to do with the making of our clothing anymore and you know even in the 19th century when corsetry became mass produced you would still have to if you were sort of getting fitted for a corset you would have to know whether you were short-waisted or you're long-waisted and stuff like that so there is a bit of a disconnect and I think that leads to a lot of ideas about the past that aren't necessarily true so yeah as I said like these garments they they're not you know comfortable to modern respects but they can't but they're also not like incredibly uncomfortable either I always say to people the 17th century um, bodies for example uh, or the style is quite off the shoulder and actually having that off the shoulder style is more restrictive than the actual boning in the garment because that means you can't move your arms I'd say the other biggest um, misconception that I found was there seems to be a lot of misconceptions about the idea that like men forced women to wear these garments, you know, all through all through the history of corsetry, for example, or, um, you know, forced them to wear farthingales and stuff like that. But during this period, the the majority of voices are men's voices and a lot of men are talking about how much they hate these garments and that they wish women wouldn't wear them. And, oh, my God, why are women wearing them? And, of course, there's, like, two layers here, right? There is the layer of living in a patriarchal society where women are expected to look a certain way, you know, to appeal to men. And so, yes, if you aren't tall, if you aren't slender and straight and slim, you will turn to certain um, garments, to makeup, to things like that, to fit your society's definition of how a woman should look, which is often, you know, dictated by men, but is also dictated by women as well. Um, and still now women feel the need to conform to a particular look to please people around them. But yeah, so they've got that layer of this sort of unconscious, subconscious idea of like, you know, um, which, you know, men do have a hand in dictating how women should look. But this idea of this overt, like, no, you need to wear a corset is totally wrong for this period. It's the majority of discussions about how much they hate corsets and they wish women wouldn't wear them. And, you know, what are women trying to hide under corsets? What are they trying to hide under fathering girls? That comes from men. And, and, you know, quite nasty things you know these men will say about women yet women continue to wear these garments so there's sort of this real disconnect and that was something I was really interested in exploring it's like okay well what did these garments actually mean 
mm-hmm. for women. And, you know, it's got to do with things like keeping up with the Joneses, with beauty, with marking your sort of social status, but also, you know, needing support. You need breast support. They don't have bras during this period. So practical as well as social and cultural ideas. That's so fascinating. And just what you were saying about the stretchy material. I've never thought of that. Poor things with no like, you know, comfy trackies to get into or tell people like I wear I wear vintage clothes and you yes. know, I have skirts from the fifties and sixties. They don't have any stretch. They them, don't stretch so. at all. I was thinking the same thing because I love clothes from the forties, but I find it so hard to find anything that I can fit into yeah. unless I'm gonna go and put on foundation garments, which I don't usually wear. But it's so and you, true it makes the material. you so much more aware of your body yeah. and how it changes over it the day, over does. the month, like your fluctuations in like if you eat a big meal, yeah. like suddenly the waistband is really tiny and you're like, oh. So, <laughs> yeah, so we're not, true. I don't think we're as aware of aware as aware of our bodies now mm. because of stretch and clothing and the way that they fluctuate. That is so fascinating, Sarah. This has been such a really fascinating discussion. Before I let you run away, where where can listeners find out about you and your work if they want to go and explore a little bit more? I'm on various social media. So I'm on Instagram as sarahbendel underscore fashion history. I have my own website and blog. So it's sort of Sarah with a H a bendel b-e-n-d-a-l-l.com so there i've got different blog posts about different things i've got links to yeah all my social media to um, a gallery of all my reconstructions to you know lots of lots of different things so actually that's probably the best place to start and then if you're interested in reading my book if you just google shaping femininity sarah bendel um, you get a great preview on Google Books and you can go to all your favorite bookstores to, to buy it. Fantastic. So I'll, I'll add some links to the show notes to make it easy for people to find. And I'm going to go and have a look now at your reconstructions, you clever, <laughs> clever, clever woman. And thank you so much for taking part in this podcast special, All Things 16th Century Women. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. No, thanks so much for having me. It's been really, really great. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music> <laughs>